Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. How do you decide what to uh, preach on, Jonathan? Well, thanks for asking, weird voice inside my head. Uh, I'll tell you how I don't choose themes. I don't get uh, topics or curriculum from the, from the head office of the Alliance. I do not uh, listen to what Stephen Furtick and Joel Osteen are preaching and then base my series on that. I, unlike professional speakers, I actually don't preach on my, based on my expertise. Uh, that's what professional speakers do. You, you fly in Henry Cloud to talk about boundaries. You fly in uh, John Maxwell to talk about leadership. Fly in uh, Susie Orman to talk about finances and Gary Thomas to talk about marriage and Josh McDowell to talk about apologetics. The only thing I'm an expert in is 1980s sketch comedy. And... Um, <laughs> I haven't figured out how to shoehorn that into a preaching series yet, but uh, I actually don't feel the pressure to be an expert on things. What I want to be is a good uh, curator. You know what a a curator is? Like at a museum or art gallery, they're the ones who try to track down the best works, the best artifacts, the pieces of interest that they can find. And uh, so I want to pull together the best quotes, the best books, the best readings from other experts and hopefully, you know, synthesize it into uh, something relatable or helpful for our context, our congregation. And um, here's perhaps the main source of topics that inspire my preaching series. Unlike the experts, it's, it's usually the issues that that I struggle with, uh, the issues that I keep banging my head up against, uh, the areas of, of sin and temptation that I end up talking about, which means there will be an endless supply of potential topics, I'm afraid. Um, in fact, sometimes, not all times, but sometimes when you find a preacher obsessed with uh, a specific sin, uh, sometimes <laughs> it's a giveaway that that that's, they're struggling with it. Uh, even as a kid, I remember from the 80s, like there were a couple famous pastors who seemed obsessed with sexual sin and who themselves fell to their own sexual sin. Um, a pastor about 20 years ago who obsessively talked about, you know, the moral scourge of LGBTQ and and was caught up in a same-sex affair. And pastors always hounding for money in the church who end up in some sort of financial impropriety. And like I say, that's not a hard, fast rule. It's just interesting. And so I'm just going to be honest with you that much of what I talk about are issues that are, are very close to home. Um, when we talked about difficult emotions and depression recently, those 
Those are things that are near and dear. Uh, when we talked about deconstructing or, or healthy marriages or generosity, um, right in my wheelhouse of, of vulnerabilities, sometimes it's, it's, it's what I might discern uh, is going on corporately in, in our church. Um, what I see happening church-wide, you know, that's where that series on, on offense came from. And every time I address something that is relevant to me, personal to me, wouldn't you know it? People come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, me too, brother, me too. And so for, for three weeks, I am with some degree of, of fear and trembling going to address something that I keep butting my head up against, something I keep seeing others struggle with. Shame. Shame. And in fact, I would suggest that some of you may not even recognize that it is a presenting problem in your life until you are challenged or forced to go a few more layers deep and you realize that much of your stuckness, your insecurity, your pain is in fact rooted in shame. What is shame? Uh, well, it's a pervasive sense um, of uh, this ongoing premise that you are fundamentally bad. Uh, you are inadequate, defective, unworthy, or somehow not fully valid as a human being. It is lugging around inside of you this, this dead weight of not good enoughness. Uh, and just, just to acknowledge one of the key resources here, the, the wisdom and expertise that I found in this book, Shame and Grace by Lewis Smedes, um, I'm not sure if there is anything that can sneak up on you, come out of nowhere the way that shame can. Uh, it can fall over you when a, when a person stares at you after you've said something silly at a party. Uh, or when you think everyone is gossiping about how skinny or fat or clumsy you are. Uh, it can come when no one else is even looking at you except yourself. And what you see is a phony and a coward or a failure or someone who's nose is too big or whose legs are too bony or maybe you see a mother who's incompetent at mothering. Ultimately, um, someone with little hope of ever becoming an acceptable human being. And, and the feeling of shame is not about, you know, some isolated bad thing that we did or said. The feeling of shame is about who we are. Uh, it is deeply tied to our identity. It is not as though there's like a few tears in our clothes that need some stitching. It's more like the whole outfit is frayed and full of holes. Shame makes us feel like we are unacceptable. And, and to feel that is so heavy, heavy, heavy. It is a life-wearying heaviness. Shame-burdened people are the, a sort whom Jesus had in mind when he said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and trade your heaviness for my lightness. 
I want to give you rest. Here's some things people who are shame burdened might say. See if you've ever said something like this. I feel like I'm a fake. I'll bet if the people who I respect really knew me, they'd be done with me. I feel inadequate. I feel uh, as, as if I rarely meet up to what's expected of me. When I look inside myself, I seldom feel any joy at what I am. I feel inferior to the really good people that I know. I feel as if God is probably disgusted with me. You know, sometimes we get our, our terminology mixed up, and, and this is a case where I think words really matter. Some of you today may feel guilt. Uh, we feel guilty for what we do. We feel shame for who we are. And a person feels guilt because he, he did something wrong. A person feels shame because he is something wrong. By the way, I'm going to interchangeably use he, she, they during this series, lest you think it's more about one gender or another. Uh, shame knows no gender, race, age. Um, you maybe feel guilty because you lied to your mother, but you feel shame because you're not the person your mother wanted you to be. And it gets confusing because in reality, the, the feelings of guilt and shame often you know, overlap, but I think it's important that we define the terms. Um, shame is not the same as embarrassment. It's not the same as discouragement. Here's an example, true story. After a tough day on the scaffolding, painting his immersive masterpiece of the creation of the world on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, uh, Michelangelo wrote a poem to his pain, and the final line of his sonnet in his notebook was, I am not a painter. Michelangelo, greatest of them all, not a painter. He was terribly discouraged. But you know what? The next morning, he was on the scaffold again, brushes in his hands and his teeth, and, and he was painting the vision of the maker of the universe. Okay, that's not shame. When you're discouraged, you, you feel for a while like you're not doing the job. When I feel shame, it is a chronic hunch that I am not the person. I will never be the person that I ought to be. And some of you in this room, some of you watching online, might start to recognize yourself in these messages. Um, here are some of the leading candidates for shame. The, the guilt spreader. Uh, the overly responsible. The obsessive moralizer. The compulsive comparer. How about the approval addict? You know, some people cannot approve of themselves unless they know for sure that other people approve of them. But you know what? It'll never be enough, will it? A compliment today has got to be applause tomorrow. And applause tomorrow has to be a standing ovation the next day. And so whose approval do the approval addicts crave? Anybody's. <laughs> a teacher's approval, a, an audience's approval. Uh, most of all, I think the approval of the two people who 
nagged them from the beginning to make something of themselves and become a person that mom and dad and God could approve of. You know, often their parents are stand-ins for God. And if mom and dad can't approve of them, uh, it feels like God can't either. And I know people who dwell in the shadows of their fathers, for instance. We'll, we'll circle back to parents often, because for better or for worse, parents have this outsized influence in this area. What about the, the never-deserving type? Is this somebody you know? I, I see it in competent women who are driven to demeaning encounters with dependent men, always kind of rescuing a, a man-child, a creep. And they may not say it directly, but the intrinsic message seems to be, I don't deserve a good man. Uh, let me make a quick case, though, that there, there is a rare thing, something that we might call like a healthy shame. Um, if nothing else, sometimes our shame is like a, like a warning light on the dashboard of our soul. And it's a painful signal, but it, it can alert us that something is off. It, it may alert us to an even deeper-rooted problem. I'd also say this, that our shame can be a chance to understand ourselves. Um, you know, look, shame has no intelligence. It does not reason with you. Uh, it is a feeling, and when we feel shame, it, it sets us at a crossroads. We have a, ch- we have a choice. Do we, do we rush to medicate that feeling, or do we work hard a bit at probing at it, asking ourselves, what, it, what is causing this feeling? And we, imis- we initially discover... Um, I think a great deal of insight about ourselves if we would explore it. Now, be prepared that you, what you find out about yourselves uh, may be scary or disappointing, but shame may be the, the push we need to look in the mirror. You know what else? Shame can protect us if it's healthy shame. Here's what I mean. Um, healthy shame can be one of the best defenses against foolishness. When it comes down to it, most people do the right thing because they would be ashamed of themselves if they did the wrong thing. There are famous people, infamous people, celebrities, politicians, criminals, who are what we would call shameless. They are without shame, not in a good way. Uh, When people say, have you no shame? You know, that's not a compliment. Uh, pornographers are shameless, not in the way that Adam and Eve were, uh, were, where they were naked in the garden and felt no shame. Uh, no, it, in this context, it means they've lost the power to feel shame. And, and you could say in that sense, they have lost or are losing their soul. You know, here's what the prophet Jeremiah says. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No. They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. I, you know people like this. People who, who it seems have lost their ability to even blush. But the reality, most shame is indeed 
unhealthy shame. So, so whereas healthy shame can point to something deeper that you should address, unhealthy shame is more like, is more like looking at yourself in one of those funhouse mirrors, you know? It's a false shame because it doesn't actually have a basis in reality. Uh, the shame that we don't deserve because we're not as bad as our feelings are trying to tell us. You know, it, it, it can be complicated because most of us feel both healthy shame and unhealthy shame at different times or sometimes all at once. And it, and it may take time to distinguish the two. One thing's for sure is that all unhealthy shame is rooted in a deceit of one kind or another. Nobody sets out to lie to themselves, but we have all kinds of enemies lying to us, right? Uh, you know, in the past, I, I wrongly worried more about a complacent congregation, you know, prideful people who are, who are blind to their shortcomings. Uh, from what I've observed as a pastor, I, I should have been more worried about people who are blind to their own strengths. People who come into church on a Sunday morning uh, who don't need to be taken down a peg. Most of you have already had life take you down a peg this week. You've already had your job take you down a peg. You've already had, most tragically, Satan try to take you down a peg. Shame has taken you down a peg. Undeserved shame is, is a false message from your false self. What, what do I mean by that? Our false self is this image of what we ought to be that has been concocted out of false messages. So those false messages have been imposed on us by others. Um, they are planted in us by sources that try to create us in their images. You know, sources like the culture, uh, unfortunately often from, from graceless churches or graceless religion, sadly from unaccepting parents. And, and you may not even believe in this, but we have an unseen spiritual accuser. So here's what happens. If we accept their image of how we ought to be, we end up feeling shame if we don't measure up to it. So our culture, for instance, keeps telling us in a myriad of ways, uh, I'd argue more so than ever, more, more acutely than ever, with the advent of, of social media, thousands of eyes on us. Culture is telling us that if a person wants to be acceptable, uh, she must look good, feel good, live good. The, the self we are supposed to be comes in a svelte body, draped in designer fashion, capped with a gorgeous face. She's supposed to feel fantastic about herself. She's supposed to feel seductive and adorable and independent, a girl boss, and also, also totally fulfilled to boot. Uh, and to top it off, she needs to make a lot of money. And she needs to influence uh, with important people. Uh, she needs to uh, post her most Instagrammable moments on social, you know, never 
our most tragic, lonely, hurtful moments. And so if we're too fat or too thin or too poor or too powerless, our culture expects us to feel shame. Uh, And this really breaks my heart. Number two, it actually makes me angry. It's my holy discontent, you could say. I know people probably in this room, people listening, have been deeply wounded by graceless churches, graceless religion that told us to be acceptable, we got to live up to the customs and rules, shun the taboos of, of its tradition. And it shames us when we do what it forbids, and it shames us when we don't do what it requires. And, and it becomes this quick path to trying to keep up appearances, faking appearances. It's, it's this quick path to hypocrisy. You know, graceless religions make, um, make us compelled, I think, to, to make up for what we lack inside by trying to obey all the regulations and customs and etiquette on the outside. And sometimes I'm amazed when I hear the stories of legalistic, hurtful churches that some of you have come from and, and you haven't given up on Christianity or church. Um, you're like the disciples who said to Jesus, where else would we go? Only you have the words of life, Jesus. Um, this next one, I think, will sting for many of you. It's, it's unaccepting parents. They will impose a heavy burden on us. Now, on the positive side, I suppose you could say that they, they tell us that we can be acceptable. On the negative side, the only way to win their approval is by doing whatever they expect of us. And what usually happens is you find out you'll never be acceptable enough to meet their approval. They, they, they put us in this double bind. We, we know we've got to be very good if we're to earn their love, but we also know that we just don't have what it takes to be good enough. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and I'm, I'm just so sorry. It, it, that is no way to raise a child. And I believe either instantly, but most often over time, I believe God can heal you of those lies that you've received. Lastly, we, we have a spiritual accuser. That's what John calls him in, in Revelation 12. An accuser of the saints. That's what God calls you. A saint. But the accuser, it says, is working day and night to whisper lies in your ears. Accusations. You don't measure up. You'll never be good enough. How can you be forgiven after what you've done? Um, those people will write about you. You are a loser. And he's relentless in his lies because he loves to keep you in bondage. Like that video, it's a sort of a, a prison cell of shame. He gets off on it. He knows it will stunt your spiritual growth, your emotional growth, your relational well-being. 
So how how can we know if our shame is uh, an unhealthy shame that we don't deserve or, um, or, or don't deserve to feel? Here's some hints. Unhealthy shame exaggerates our faults. Like, we'll have no sense of the distinction between minor misdemeanors and major felonies. I've also noticed that unhealthy shame is chronic. I think every one of us is going to walk through a valley of shame every now and then. But some of us take on a lifelong lease on shame. It, it becomes our permanent home. Um, we are shame-bound. Our feelings, you could say, are, are tilted towards shame. Anything can bring it on. A mild criticism... Uh, a memory of a foolish word that we said to someone, this feeling like people are laughing at us, not with us. I'd even propose that, that some are so hooked into shame, it's like we'd be lonely without it. We've lived with it for so long, it's become part of our consciousness, part of our being. I, I've, I've said this, Uh, unhealthy shame is put on us by others. False shame comes from the outside. It comes from others telling us about the person that we ought to be. Unhealthy shame can make, in a weird way, unhealthy people proud of their shame. These these are not the shameless people I was talking about. These are more shame-bent people who can turn their shame into like some twisted proof of their holiness, of their superiority. The reason they feel such shame, they tell themselves, is that they judge themselves by such high divine standards, right? They think, well, only someone with such lofty standards could feel as rotten as I do. So, so if you're happy, uh, you must be a moral commoner. You know, you, you probably should be ashamed of yourself. I think there's a little bit of Irish Catholic flagellation in all of us, right? And we feel shame if another person despises us as though we were, we were objects to use instead of a person to love. You know the story of Cyrano de Bergiac? He, Steve Martin did an 80s movie based on it called Roxanne. He, he knew in the depths of his heart that anyone who looked at him, all they saw was just a, a walking nose. And I think a man feels shame when he goes to collect his first unemployment check. I don't even know if that's how they do it anymore. But let's say for argument's sake it is. And and maybe the person behind the desk just kind of glowers at them for one-tenth of a second and just just enough to make them feel like a nobody. It happens when severely disabled people have others staring at them as if all they were was their disability. Uh, we feel shame when our group is despised by another group, our, when our families are scorned by another family, when, when our race by other races, our communities by other communities. But don't we especially feel shame when we are despised or rejected by our own group? It, it's the paradox of, of true communities. The closer knit, uh, the, 
the caring community is, the more cruel it can be in its shaming. Shame, shame, double shame. Everybody knows your name. If nobody knew your name, you wouldn't feel shame. That's why you can say such hurtful things on Twitter behind your false avatar or, or, or um, handle. Uh, nobody really knows you. No one uh, can identify you. But, but in close-knit families or a close-knit community, if they choose, it can, they can utilize the most effective shame of all. When a child is or does what that community considers shameful, the parents take the child's shame on themselves and in doing so can inject their child with a double dose of shame. You know, in the old days, the parents hid the children, right? An unmarried daughter who found herself with child was sent to the city to live with an aunt. Uh, today, it's more often that the child hides themselves. You know, maybe, maybe a child comes out as gay, but then disappears from the family to avoid the pain of that shaming. So many men in the 80s and 90s died all alone as, as AIDS drove them deeper and deeper into shame, deeper into isolation. Shame, you could say, is like the dark side of what we would extol as family values. Here's what the beginning of the Gospel of John reveals about Jesus and the shame he endured. He came to his own home and his own people received him not. And in the end, on that cross, those same people gawked at him as if he were livestock being slaughtered. But Jesus refused to ingest into his own spirit the shame that people tried to inflict on him. In fact, Jesus turned the horror of social shame into an honor to those who are ashamed for doing good. He says, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out as evil on account of the Son of Man. You know, there's another story in the Old Testament about a group of people, a common community, living in shame. It's, it's a powerful story about God's people who were, who were tragically, for 430 years, stuck in slavery. And so you have this generation after generation after generation, people that are born a slave. All they know is I'm a slave. That's their identity. I'm a commodity, not a person. My life is disposable. 430 years, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they believe you are not valuable whatsoever. And I could go off on a real rant here about generational shame, generational trauma. And then God raises up Moses, played by Charlton Heston, <laughs> and he says, let my people go. And now here's the real tragedy. Skip ahead. Even though they were outwardly free, inwardly, they were still slaves. They were out of slavery but you could say the slavery wasn't out of them. And some of you who are followers of Christ, you've been forgiven. 
You've been freed. But, but just because your sin is forgiven, some of you are still living as slaves, slaves to shame, uh, believing a lie that is not true of you. Because some of you watching maybe or listening today, I don't know who it is, but though you have been forgiven by Christ, you need to know your sins he does not hold against you. He remembers them no more. You're still living with, you're still consumed by, you're still driven with this shame-based thinking. You're still believing that you're something that God says you are not. The, the Israelites were out of slavery, but slavery wasn't out of them. And then check this out. In Joshua 5 verse 9, scripture says this. The Lord said to Joshua, today. Somebody say today. Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in, G in Egypt. And then about 4,000 years of history later, something else is going to be rolled away. It's, it's a stone in front of a tomb where Jesus was buried after taking on all our shame and all our guilt and all our insecurity. And he defeats death and he defeats sin. And because of the resurrection, there is no more shame. Somebody may have said to you at one point in your life, shame on you. Shame on you. The devil may have whispered in your ear, shame on you. And today God is saying to us, shame off you. Shame off you in Jesus' name. As of today, he is rolling away the shame. Lord, no one, no one knows our heart better than you, Father. And you search our heart to, to save us, not to shame us, to, to deliver us, not to demean us, to change us, not to scold us. And Jesus, you know I've, I've thought and said and done a lot of things in my life which I'm ashamed. I've been painfully shamed by others. I've shamed people who I love. Shame is such a lying thief. It robs us of our dignity and our freedom and our joy. So when I hear you tell me that you're not ashamed of me, that you're not ashamed to call me brother. Oh, it, it, it humbles and gladdens me like nothing else. You're the only one who has the power to paralyze shame. Lord Jesus, thank you. I praise you. Set people free today. Step into our Egypt, Lord. Take us by your hand. March us into freedom. The freedom of your promised land. Fight for us, Lord, I pray. Surround us with your truth. In Jesus' name, shame off you today. Will you stand as we just declare that? You can be free of this. It may happen in an instant. I pray that it would. But today could be the beginning of a journey where shame is off you in Jesus' name. I want to thank you for coming today. Thank you for watching today. More than coming to church. More than watching church. Let's go.
be the church. You're a love people. God bless you.